Conversations with Q. I'm Lucia, Q's Marketing Director, and every week I have a chat with a marketer or entrepreneur from the tech space to get to the bottom of a bunch of things that are probably fascinating you, inspiring you, or downright puzzling you right now. Think how to make decisions about your career, what it actually takes to build a successful startup, marketing tactics you should and shouldn't bother with, the dark side of hustle culture, equality in the tech industry, and more. I'm really excited to share the penultimate episode of Conversations with Q season two with you, because I had a fascinating chat with our guest, Dan Marisata. Dan is a London-based entrepreneur who so far in his career has founded a string of really cool companies, from a QR code advertising platform that targeted student drinking games to the multi-award winning fashion app, Grabble. His most recent venture is Dawn, which serves up bite-sized portions of the latest in neuroscience, nutrition and psychology for its subscribers every Sunday morning. Dan also hosts the highly successful podcast, Secret Leaders, whose guests include everyone from Starling Bank founder Anne Bowden to celebrity photographer Rankin. Dan was kind enough to tell me how he'd achieved these whirlwind successes, but equally the failures he encountered along the way. A recurring theme among even the most successful entrepreneurs, as I'm starting to notice. So one question I always really love to ask guests at the beginning of each episode is, as a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Obviously an astronaut, no, I'm joking, <laughs> I, um, I just feel like that's what everyone, uh, everyone says. Um, so when, um, when I was a kid, I, for some reason, wanted to be a screenwriter. Mm. Uh, and it's a bit of an unusual one, it's a bit niche, but ultimately I was fascinated by the way that people told stories. Yeah. And I loved films, and I would always watch films, but instead of just enjoying them for what they were, I would always be so curious about what was going on beneath it to get the story out. And so that was just something that I was always really curious about. Now, sadly, I haven't grown up and done that, but Never when I graduated late. from university, that is the first job that I technically had, was uh, working in the screenwriting studio. Oh, really? That's cool. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, because you did do um, English and art history at university, so I guess that's kind of related to the storytelling. Um, exactly. Yeah, so do you, I also actually studied English at university, so I'm kind of interested to ask you, do you think your degree and university experience kind of shaped you in a way that set you up for the career path you have now? Definitely not. <laughs> um, for me, personally, if I look back at university, I think um, even it was all a big waste of my time, <laughs> or um, I, knowing what I know now, I would have just chosen completely different courses. So the reality is I took what was easiest for me so I could have fun. Yeah. Um, and I did. I had a great time at uni. But um, was it as meaningful an opportunity to learn and build my career as it could have been? No, and that obviously comes down to the choices I made at the time to have an easier ride. Um, mm. But, you know, looking back on it, I wish I'd have studied the, either philosophy or psychology, because I think okay. that those two disciplines are arguably two of the most transferable and meaningful in most uh, professional jobs, whereas 
the outcome of me taking English was pretty much that I never wanted to read fiction ever again. Yeah, I mean, I definitely know the feeling. I think I had several years after uni where I just kind of stopped reading, which was bizarre. Exactly. Because I'd always been... I had, yeah, I, I did as well. I had several yeah. years. I only just, you know, I've gotten back into reading so much, but it's really mm. all business and um, and philosophy and, you know, different perspectives, but there's very little uh, fiction now because I've just gone right off it from having it shoved down my throat so much. Yeah. I know, I'm exactly the same. And I think, um, I mean, there are some transferable skills I think I got from my degree, but now I look back, it just seems quite sort of self-indulgent. And I really enjoyed the course, had a great time, but yeah, probably didn't. What if they are also transferable? Could you transfer some of them to me then, please? (laughs) I'll let you know. (laughs) So you mentioned then that you, your first job out of uni was doing screenwriting. So could you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, I was very lucky, but I, um, very lucky and unlucky, but I got to work in Anthony Minghella's film studio. Oh, cool. Um, and he was the director of The English Patient and talented Mr. Ripley mm. and Cold Mountain. So he was one of the UK's greatest um, assets in terms of filmmaking. And it was amazing because I would read scripts and I would learn and I would essentially pass things up uh, for, essentially scripts would come in and you had to essentially read everything and then you had to understand what kinds of things his production studio was looking to produce that year and if it fell within that remit or whatever, it would pass on to someone else. So obviously Mm -hmm. I was, you know, very junior in the sense that I was the first port there and you were able to then work with some of the, and stuff that went through the next station, um, you were able to then sort of discuss with them what edits and what, uh, ideas might happen. So I got sort of the inside track of what happens um, from screenwriting to producing, really. And it was really fascinating. But sadly, whilst I was working there, uh, he passed away. Oh, okay. um, quite suddenly, it all happened very quickly. And it wasn't really well set up to deal with, uh, you know, the head honcho of that company uh, passing away and 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 basically I just needed to find a new job because it yeah. just wasn't sure it wasn't clear what was going to happen the whole thing just went into pre-fall so it was really sad because yeah. he was amazing a really great guy yeah well what a start to your kind of um entry into the real world after university I guess but so then yeah. you moved into um I think advertising a publishing company and it looks like you kind of did several sales and marketing roles in the years following that so was that really just kind of a bit of an accident that you fell into that or did you have a clear idea following the screenwriting that that was what you wanted to do no I I basically I wanted to use my creative interests and um mediocre talents um (laughs) to apply somewhere relevantly and in my mind it seemed to be really sensible that advertising might be a really good place for that yeah so I, I, and I always believed as well that if you learn sales, then you can do most things because you always need sales in almost everything that you do. So um, I followed that path of, essentially I actually went to go work in a pub in Hampstead after um, Anthony passed away because there were no jobs because it was 2007 and it was a recession. Yeah. Um, so I went to work there for actually a year and I ended up talking to a punter um, so much that he ended up offering me a job in his agency and that's how I got my first advertising job um, mm. but from that point on 
yeah, most of my roles were based around uh, sales or creative advertising, which is in another way essentially sales because we're coming up with a way to mass sell things to consumers. Um, and I think it was really, I think it was a really important skill to learn. It certainly made me happy for quite a few years. I found it a really interesting experience and quite an interesting industry. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and you set up your first business, Deal 52, in 2013. So did you yes. kind of have that bug like you wanted to start working for yourself? Well, no, is the honest truth. So I, my business partner, Joel, who is still my business partner, had that desperate bug. Um, he was at PwC and really unhappy. Um, in my situation was really different. Like I was finally in a company that I thought treated me really well, respected me professionally, and was giving me the creative freedom to thrive. So I had a great insight as an employee, as someone who is extremely driven and mm. extremely, um, uh, I guess, focused on what a good career path looks like. Um, and they managed to make me feel, without having to use money especially, I certainly wasn't the best paid person that I knew by any means, but they've given me all of the things that, I really needed to thrive in my role and therefore deliver value to the company. And that made me feel really valued. And so there wasn't this niggling uh, desperation to go and prove myself or do anything different. Whereas Joel was at PwC. Mm. So, you know, that is the complete and utter different experience where he was paid far better than I was. But, you know, he was in an environment which didn't celebrate individualism or creativity or anything. He was desperate to leave. And because he knew that we've got very different skills, it was actually him nagging me to leave, which was a much harder sell because I had nothing wrong at the time. Yeah, must have been quite a big risk for you to take. It felt way more risky for me than for him. And again, yeah. it's ironic because he um, earned a lot more money than I did. Yeah. Um, but regardless of that it just felt really um uh, like tough yeah this is a really difficult decision to leave your company and go off into the unknown and you get really attached to the safety net of your salary of course yeah. so it's, it's it's hard it's hard to consider actually leaving um but we did it anyway I, you know i'm delighted that we did but it was yeah, stressful. Yeah, so what actually spurred you to leave? Was it just that you believed in the idea? And it would be great if you could tell us a little bit more about what Deal 52 was. Mm. So Deal 52 was um, well based on a very simple fact that I'd been working in students and youth advertising and uh, the QR codes were becoming popular at the time, if you can imagine that. And um, mm -hmm. the reality is bunch of advertisers that I would work with were always looking for creative ways to get in front of students. And one of the things that I'd actually recognize was uh, most students that uh, we would do campaigns with, etc. you know, they all played um, uh, drinking games. And so whenever they would go to uh, like drink together, they played drinking games with cards. And I came up with this idea with, with Joel that, you know, what if we could get our cards into all the different weather spoons in the country and using QR codes, we could essentially update the deal every single week 
Um, and it was just, you know, Deal 52 is not a very inventive um, <laughs> name, but there's 52 cards in the pack, obviously, and there's 52 days a week, uh, 52 days, weeks in a year. Sorry, I got there eventually. Sometimes so, it feels like there are 52 days. The idea was we would just change the drinks off for every single week, which would give people a good reason to come back and play drinking games in Wetherspoons pubs as opposed to at home on their own. And you'd, one week you'd get a Jack and Coke for a pound, and the next week you'd get, um, you know, a Bacardi, and a, a, a Bacardi Coke for a pound, whatever it might be. And um, all you had to do was scan the same pack of cards and see what the drink was that week, and the client would change it in the back end. So it was kind of bringing offline and online together. Yeah. Now, the reality is obviously no one bothered to scan the cards or anything. <laughs> so um, it was not as exciting as we had first thought. Um, but it was a really good. It was a really good first go of something, and it was really interesting just to be in control of the end-to-end process. Sure. So then, what did you do after that business? So we decided that we didn't like that business um, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one reason was just really hard to scale and not very exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of admin, a lot of physical, like products that you have to move all the time and mm. very little evidence that customers were really that into it so we decided to just stop and we started a new company which um essentially was a daily deal business so if you remember um in that particular period groupon had just been offered five billion dollars to be bought by google um everyone was on a groupon or a living social or whatever and we had this insight again using the student market as an example. We're like, but no one's targeting that market specifically, yet they're the most deal hungry people. Surely any idiot can run a daily deal site at the moment <laughs> and make a good go of it. And that was the kind of really bullshit, borderline, arrogant, well, not really borderline, factually arrogant um, perspective. <laughs> um, and we found a whole bunch of uh, third-party software providers so we didn't have to build any tech or employ anyone and we just got to work creating this daily deal platform that was targeting students and we set it all up and launched it within about three months um, the day that we launched it it basically went viral because we did this deal with hungry house uh, the takeaway delivery company uh, yeah. and our launch deal was if you took a uh, if you signed up for us sorry i'm just trying to remember it, it was a while ago <laughs> if you signed up to us you got a free five pound takeaway from hungry house and every single time someone redeemed it we got paid one pound fifty in commission mm. but in the first day it got onto uk hot deals or something and then a oh, whole wow. bunch of student platforms and that was kind of it it went viral and we got very excited thinking that we were going to become millionaires obviously yeah. we're very only fools and horses um yeah. The, the reality is, uh, you know, we had that amazing launch deal and then we really struggled to find deals after mm-hmm. that that people were engaged with. So that company did not last long, but it was a super interesting and exciting ride to uh, start something online and go viral really quickly. You know, it gave us our first taste of what could be. Yeah, it's always a really good learning experience, even if you fail, I think, um, with startups. But it seems like you're quite good at kind of tapping into cultural trends and like forming business ideas around those. 
So I'd love to hear a bit more about your current business venture, Dawn, which dishes up bite-sized portions of their latest in neuroscience, nutrition and psychology for its users every Sunday morning. So how did that idea for Dawn come about and what have you got planned for the future? Yeah, slightly different, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, more of a noble cause, I guess. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> so the reality is... Um, after we did the daily deal business, we started a company called Gravel, um, and that was a really fantastic ride. So we decided we, we were going to raise money and, and you know scale fast and build essentially a shopping app. So it was a mobile shopping app experience, and um, it had all the classic markings of a typical startup ride. So um, you know very fast growth. We raised four million pounds. We had over a million users every single month on our app. Um, we became the number one shopping app in the UK for a good few months. Sometimes battling it out was our uh, ASOS right at the top. So yeah, it was cool. a very exciting period. But ultimately, the company there became a whole bottomless pit of cash, sadly. So whilst it made lots of revenue, it was impossible to scale the profit margins. And we had a real, like, real problem with it. And essentially because we don't have too long, but the long story short there is the company ended up imploding. Um, the reality of the journey for myself and Joel is, um, you know, it was a hugely stressful ride, but one of the things that we became really good at as, as the leaders having to scale, I guess, ourselves during this period was mm. what, we could, what we could do for our own mental state to handle the ups and downs to... Um, come into work motivated and energetic and able to deal with um, those sharp turns of events all the time. Mm. Um, during that period, that's where we basically became fascinated in, um, well, essentially, I'd always been reading stuff about neuroscience, but we were both really interested in uh, mindset, you know, all the different practices from meditation to breath work to, you know, anything... Uh, slightly borderline. I'm, I'm, I'm far more on the spiritual woo-woo side, I would say, than Joel, <laughs> who's very scientific-based yeah. and hates that kind of stuff, if it's not <laughs> scientific, which gives us a good a good mix when we're talking about things. Yeah. Um, and then I'd actually, uh, I, I'd actually gone on a bit of an unusual journey during my time with Gravel. I put, um, I, I'd say I... I basically decided one day I was going to be vegan, um, okay. as you do. Oh, I've you know, done that as part well. Of <laughs> learning how to have the op optimal health, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I went from being carnivore, like full-on carnivore, to vegan overnight. Um, mm. It was all good. Uh, obviously, it was all very hard, but because I'm into things like mindset and it's all in the mind, it was just a case of just making decisions every time I was putting something in my mouth. So I was like, it's a good challenge. Anyway, after nine months... Body felt really good, but the reality is my brain was actually suffering. And I was suffering from some short-term memory concerns, which felt a bit unusual. And I was telling a friend, and they told me to get this book called Optimum Nutrition for the Mind. And it was the first time anyone had really ever mentioned to me that you can eat for your brain, so to speak. As in there were certain yeah. foods that were good for your brain. And um, you know, I'd always heard of nutrition for the body, you know, for fitness, for losing weight, putting on weight, whatever you want. But certainly not for mindset and thinking and focus and all those things. Anyway, I learned that 
Um, it was a relatively common side effect. Doesn't happen to everyone, but it can happen. But if you go onto a completely plant-based diet after you've been, you know, eating everything all your life, this has happened to a few people before, including the author of that book. And so, since reading that book, now my diet is still plant-based, but now with fish and eggs. So it's a slightly, slightly different and upgraded. But I certainly learned the value of.、Um, What foods were considered brain foods, and what what supplements to be taking, and what、um, my essentially nutritional makeup should be alongside everything else to optimize my brain power, and I just became、mm-hmm. completely engrossed in this concept and found that realistically, there's a lot of very boring stuff out there that's not very approachable or particularly interesting.、Um, there's a lot of As I said earlier, and using those words, hate them. But you know, there's a lot of woo-woo, as in、yeah. pseudoscience.、Yeah. Um, there's not a lot that's like actually science, and and then turned into something that people will actually consume and read and engage with, and essentially find interesting.、Mm. So, using the founding principle of、uh, how we work with Gravel, which was essentially we were turning shopping products into like sorry e-commerce products. Into bite-sized content, content-driven,、um, I guess, short-form mobile pieces that people could scroll through and want to buy from. The one thing that we've been good at, and I guess you're going to say now that this is where my English degrees come in handy. <laughs> we'll see. One, yeah, sadly, it's true. But the one thing that we're good at is communicating and、yeah. trying to、uh, turn boring stuff into engaging and succinct information. Yeah. So. That's kind of where Dawn started. Is we realised that two two things. One,、um, it would be great to turn this information、uh, that we read in science journals into something that's engaging. And so we write a newsletter that we share every Sunday of brain food. And essentially, we write one thing from neuroscience, psychology, or nutrition for the brain that literally comes from the science journals, but we turn it into nice and fun English. So it's three actionable things you can do every week, one from each field.、Um, mm-hmm. And we like to make it well. I say actionable. Obviously, not everything from neuroscience is ultimately actionable, but it's interesting. Yeah.、Um, and we always make sure that it's positive. And our aim is to、um, essentially let people understand their own brain. We believe that if people understand how their brain works, then hopefully they can avoid things like mental health concerns simply by understanding inputs and outputs.、Um, mm. And after all, you know, information is. Power, as they say, whether or not people choose to use the information is a whole different thing. But making sure that people have access to it and making sure that it's more consumable on on a wider spread、uh, perspective than just nerds and science people is, to me, really important.、Um, yeah. If I consider myself as a customer, someone who massively interested in all this stuff and have never personally come into contact with the idea of nutrition for the brain. Um, I think that gives me a really good understanding of just how far、um, there is in terms of space to go to educate people. Sure, and it's just it's such a great idea because it's so overwhelming. There, there is so much knowledge and information out there, but kind of picking out the actually useful things. You know, yeah, it's、difficult. hard, right? Yeah. So there's a lot. Yeah. What are some?、Um, you've kind of talked about nutrition, but what are some other habits that you've cultivated to look after your brain health and kind of make sure that you're functioning well as an entrepreneur and business owner? That is a great question.、Um, so、uh, 
great habits. Let's see. Do I have any great habits? Well, <laughs> I, um, I, I use a standing desk at work, which oh, I think is really okay. important. Yeah. So, really interestingly, but if you were to exercise three or four times a week, um, doing you know some pretty pretty intense, like very good, like gym exercise work, let's say high intensity training, whatever, mm. um, and you do that for your whole life. There is quite a lot of science behind the fact that even that is not as good for your longevity, so your lifespan, as being active and moving at shorter regular intervals, which is kind of crazy to me. So it's a really fascinating thing, but we put so much pressure on ourselves to go to the gym, to really push, and by the way, those things are really good, like doing resistance weights is especially good for us. Um, But you know, a much simpler approach to being healthy in life is actually just getting up off your seat. So if you are in an office-based job, which, you know, I certainly am, um, making sure I'm on my feet and moving is one of the most important things I can do for my health. So that is one habit that I recommend and do, and it takes a lot of getting used to when you get tired at about three o'clock, but it's good. Okay. Um, I also do um, the highly cringy trend at the moment but i've been doing it for a long time um intermittent fasting okay so i can't imagine doing it because i just worry that i'd pass out from hunger well it's funny like i'm i'll tell you because i have an app that tracks how many hours i've been doing it so i'll tell you what i'm on today so far so currently today i've been fasting for 18 hours and 18 minutes since i last ate Wow. Um, I, I imagine you just get used to it after a while. You know, yeah, I'm not even hungry right now, genuinely. It's incredible. <laughs> um, and it's kind of good. Like You get to really enjoy your food when you eat. I mean, yeah. You can pig out and really not feel bad. It's quite an interesting thing. I'm not yeah. saying that you should. But, um, so, for example, today I'm going to go for 20 hours. Um, um, that's just a habit. But the reason I do that is mostly for mental clarity. So... Um, there's a bunch of evidence as to why that's good for your body, but to be honest with you, like the things that I'm particularly interested in is mental focus. Okay. Um, um, it does help focus your mind, um, and it's also just really not very distracting if you're not having to think about what you're going to eat the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's another habit that's a bit unusual. Now, something nice that I do with my wife before I go to sleep, um, we write three things um, every night before we go to sleep, three things that went well today. Okay which is particularly good if you've had a shit day. Yes, um, I can imagine. So sometimes, if you had a yeah. bad day, then thinking about a nicer way to think about it is a really important thing to do. Yeah, just even the small things sometimes can make so much difference. Yeah, exactly. So it's just really nice. So it's just little things like that. Um, I mean, I could go on, but I don't want to yeah. sound like a freak. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think those are some really good actionable habits. And I'm absolutely terrified by what you said about um, the exercise you do and how it's better just to move in the day. So maybe so I'll start going. Right? But yeah, it's fascinating, especially when you think of like all the money and stuff people spend on going to the gym and the time and everything. But yeah, I keep getting a lot of those emails at the moment or sort of seeing medium posts that are all saying sitting down is killing us. And it's definitely something to think about. It's really interesting Mm. and it's really odd, but um, yes, I mean, I think I've seen probably a very similar one to you, which is, um, you know, sitting down all your life is the equivalent of smoking like 20 cigarettes a day or something. Terrifying. So it's such a mental way to think about comparing something. But, you know, 
It's just the way that your body works as well. So it's like it's it's, it's also just a metabolism thing. It's just good to be moving. I think as long as you're moving every hour, that's great. Like the extreme version at the other end of the spectrum is obviously what I do, which is standing up all day. But mm. at the same time, when I started doing it, my main thinking around it was I used to be a bartender. This isn't that hard. This is what literally yeah, natural is. Yeah, and we've all done that probably at some point in our lives, done a bartending There's just so many good um, examples of jobs that we've all yeah. done where you are on your feet all day. It's just as soon as you're in front of the screen, you're like, that's weird. Yeah, it's really strange, actually. Um, so another one of your projects I'd love to talk to you about is your podcast, which is really successful, um, and it's called Secret Leaders, and you interview CEOs and founders behind some of the world's leading brands, so Calm, Joe Malone, Uber, Deliveroo, and so many more. So what inspired you to start this podcast? Um, so I was really lucky in that I was, in my last company, Gravel, I got to meet so many interesting people because we were scaling so fast. You know, I would go to other inspiring leaders that I thought had all the answers, um, and, and I would ask them, you know, what should I do about this problem I've got and that problem I've got? Um, and they were always really generous in in answering and, and mm. telling me. Now, the reality is, uh, I, after a while, felt bad that I'd met so many interesting people and it turns out they're all really quite willing to be vulnerable and helpful. Um, I felt a bit selfish just holding the information onto myself. So, <laughs> you know, I went to a couple of them, um, you know, who I'd found incredibly inspiring and just asked, you know, would they be open to being recorded for a podcast? And uh, this was, you know, almost three years ago. So whilst podcasting had already been around for ages, it wasn't quite as mental as it currently is in terms of, um, you know, there's such an amazing interest in podcasting at the moment. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it wasn't quite as noisy as it is at the moment, which mm -hmm. was awesome because it meant that I was able to go and record these guests and Rich and I, so Rich is a friend of mine who also runs a technology company, and he was more interested in the production side, so learning how to put one out there rather than what I was interested in, which was being nosy and asking awkward questions. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's quite a good, quite a good mix because neither of us actually liked what each other actually did yeah. or had any interest in trying to do that. So it's a good partnership there. Um, and we got lucky because we basically just recorded the series really ad hoc and really average. We spent £250 producing the whole series. Um, and we just put it out week by week. And, you know, we were recording things the night before it would go out, um, mm -hmm. recording the intro and outro because we'd forgotten to do it and things like that. Okay. Um, but after the first series, we got 25,000 downloads. So we were like, that's, that's amazing. no marketing. Yeah. And we are like, that's really quite impressive we think i mean we don't know but yeah. we're like it sounds like a good number and it certainly sounds like good enough to do a second one and try and make a bit more effort so once we um had some numbers behind us that we could use to validate we actually took in some sponsorship and decided to go inside a studio and record them properly and you know it's in itself is a perfect startup journey because anyone that runs a startup in theory should know the process which is you're doing little tests to validate if the market wants your product and if not mm. you should change before spending all your money mm. and so that's essentially what we've been doing with secret leaders you know it's a little bit by little bit each series just improving and making sure that the market actually wants what we're putting out before we go all crazy on on you know doing something that 
sounds amazing, but technically isn't actually what people like. And so we've been pretty good at taking feedback from people um, and understanding what kind of guests they want to hear and what kind of questions as well. Yeah, I think that's, um, I read your, a post you wrote on your kind of the things you'd learn about starting a podcast. And I sort of related to it a lot because when you start out, you don't really have any idea what you're doing. And then you, with practice, you get better at it, um, hopefully. Um, but yeah, I think that listening to feedback thing is actually really vital. And I've had some other guests on this show say the same thing. Um, and it's really just about the content that you're putting out. And if you get that right everything else will follow and you don't really even need to do as much marketing. Yeah, I think it's completely true. I mean, basically the real, like what we've learned is um, the only way that we grow really is through recommendations. Yeah. So people tell people, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's not the world's most exciting or sophisticated plan, Yeah. but there's literally just what happens is, yeah. um, people tell their friends to listen to this particular episode. I mean, literally, as you were talking to me, one of our previous guests, um, Mills, uh, who's the founder of Us2, uh, which is an amazing agency, they made Monument Valley, which is one of the most successful games ever. Um, He's literally just Instagrammed a photo of him listening to the Starling Bank episode. So, Uh, you know, this is such a great episode, blah, 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 everyone should listen. Yeah. You know, it's a really good example of um you know Mills is someone that as a guest I've never met before um since becoming a guest like him and I talk all the time and he loves the podcast so he listens to loads of the other guests as well and shares their episodes so you know you can get that happening and that's that's just a really natural way to grow but that only happens if you um if you listen to feedback yeah um what do you think makes a great interviewer and what do you think makes a great guest um, well, if I'm honest, a great interviewer is someone who comes prepared with, I mean, it depends on the type of podcast, incidentally, but yeah. comes prepared with um, information and research about that guest, just like you've done, is a really okay. good example, because it's funny for me being answering questions. It's very yeah, I was thinking me, that, you're on the other side. Emotionally, every time you drop in a nugget like you've researched, it makes me feel really comfortable to talk to you. Yeah. Um, so it's a really interesting insight for me because I always do my research on the guests and, um, you know, they're always quite surprised and they often comment on the fact that other people don't do that. So really? yeah. it's so obvious, but yeah. a lot of people just wing it. And it's like, if you're going to take someone else's time, if you demonstrate that you've done your research or tried to make some effort and finding out about them before the interview, it's going to make it go better. Yeah. Um, so that is the hallmark of a good host as is shutting up and listening so Mm. my biggest learning after series one was i talked way too much i interrupted guests i tried to be funny (laughs) all this crap um and the interviews just did not flow anywhere near as well as they have done since because i've learned to ask a question and just stay quiet which again something that you're good at i've noticed (laughs) so it's it's a hard skill though yeah it is, yeah, and um, I think it's, it's sometimes also difficult when you're not actually in person and you're talking, you know, like we're talking over a call um, right now, so you don't have those visual cues as well. No, totally. I mean, and I can't relate to that on the basis of I've actually never done, like, all of my uh, interviews are in person. Yeah, it's a, if you can do it, that's, I think that's a really good thing to do. I mean, a lot of guests on this show are based in America, so 
Um, no, of course, quite, quite I completely get that. And this is the thing, you know. And, and when I I was in America for a month, so I went to interview a yeah. bunch of them face to face. But for for secret leaders, we just had an agreement between Rich and I is that we'd only interview people if we could do it face to face, and yeah. um, that is a totally limiting factor. And I don't think it's that important, but I do think it can help you build rapport. And realistically. And if I think about some of the guests that I've genuinely become, I would say, friends, that comes from meeting them face to face and just getting on and sharing values, which is way harder to do on a phone call. Sure. Yeah. So there is some really good benefit of it as well. Definitely. And so what do you think makes a good guest? Um, well, <laughs> you tell me. I think... <laughs> I think it's someone. I think it's someone who is able to be uh, vulnerable, mm. talkative, and reflect honestly on things that have gone badly as well as well. I think it's really boring listening to a guest that everything's gone well for. It's just you don't learn anything. Yeah, that's just my opinion. No, I agree. I think people, especially nowadays, there is a big interest in failure and what we can learn from that. Well, it's just that all, all, you know, realistically, people grow from experiences of of overcoming challenges. And so it's really like, in my opinion, it's just just such an obvious... um, it's such an obvious thing to do to be open about what went wrong so other people get to learn and avoid those mistakes I and mean, that's that's huge part of um any personal growth i've had has come from my guests sharing things that went wrong that they'd have done differently and that's given me an opportunity to think about things differently and take a different approach um and if you think that everyone around you is just doing everything perfectly all the time it really doesn't help yeah, and that actually brings me on to um, my next question, which is about your TED Talk, which I really enjoyed, by the way. Um, Thank you. Does love to build resilience? And for our listeners who haven't watched that, I'll link to it in the show notes because you definitely should watch it. Um, but it's a really moving tribute to your father, who, despite numerous illnesses and obstacles, always managed to see the funny side of life. And the message is that we should all use laughter at the right times to combat stress. So... Relating to this, I'd really like to know what you make of the current kind of fetishization of stress in the startup world. And this is something we've discussed numerous times on the podcast, um, that kind of toxic hustle culture bred by mm. the bropreneurs of LinkedIn. Um, mm-hmm. And they you know, feed the idea that giving up sleep is the route to success and something to aspire to. And you, know, yeah. you just touched on the fact that we're always seeing these perfect versions of people on Instagram, which I think can be quite damaging. So having, you know, been an entrepreneur for a number of years and worked in the startup world, have you kind of witnessed this culture or like fallen victim to it yourself? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it is such bollocks, but um, (laughs) I just, you know, the thing is like, if I'm being completely honest, I think it's such bollocks, but um, it's obvious that it, you know, it, it's obvious that it works for some, right? As in, yeah. this, let's not pretend that Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, um, Richard Branson, yada, yada, yada. Let's not pretend that they didn't get there from hustling and working every single minute of every single day. Yeah. Like, they're incredible. However, 
I just don't think that that is the most important thing in the world. And I also just think that a far more interesting metric for a company's success is whether or not you're happy and your employees are happy. Um, we do, in, in our company, we talk a lot about founder sustainability and company sustainability. And this is sustainability in our, in our own ability to um, accept that we're running a marathon, not a sprint. Um, mm. Burnout is extremely real, and we kind of suffered that off our last, uh, our last company um, by buying into the hustle culture. And then the reality is we work really hard. Like, I, you know, I work most weekends, but at the same time, we are building a company um, around human potential. And yeah. um, that's the way that we frame everything. And so the reality to us is, you know, you know, we're like, what time do you want to, what, what is the perfect day to you? And what time do you want to come in? So, you know, we've got interns that came in today at 10.30 on a Monday, but like, we don't care as in they have been clearly explained to what our goals are for the month in an mm. outcome basis and um, working with them on how they optimize their time to achieve their goals or where their blockers are is far more interesting to us than whether they come in at nine or not. Yeah. And it's the same thing for us. So like I say, I work a lot on weekends, but that's also because I feel like I've got a more, more free time on a weekend. What I don't do anymore, which I used to, is get up at like 6 a.m. and start working by 7 a.m. Mm. Now I have a completely different lifestyle where I, I get up and I make sure, you know, I go to the gym and I come back and I make breakfast and I spend a bit of time with my wife and we just have a nice relaxing start to the morning. Um, you know, I start later and I finish later because I'd rather have an, a, a nicer morning. But, you know, and my business partner has a different kind of routine. Mm. And the reality is, you know, we're looking at how we can scale out an outcome focused organization that takes into account um, what happiness looks like inside of an organization, which is you're paid professionally to achieve an outcome. And those outcomes are still team related. So you still have to figure out how we get there as a team. But one person's definition of achieving that is waking up at the crack of dawn and, you know, just going for it. And another person's is absolutely not. And we shouldn't be there dictating these things. So yeah. I think the hustle culture stuff is hugely misaligned and I think it will definitely breed a whole generation of incredibly purposeless and disappointed employees who suffer from acute anxiety. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree and I think that's what people have to understand is that everyone's different and I, you know, I love that management style that you just talked about and I really hope that that's something we see more um, in companies and I think it's certainly happening a lot of startup founders I've spoken to have a similar approach um, mm. so kind of leading on from that I'd love to talk to you a bit about the tech industry in general and well just the world of business um, I yeah. know that you're later this week you're hosting an event on female leadership and equality for International Women's Day so to get us to a place of true equality and inclusion in business and the tech industry, what do you think needs to change? I think it's a really interesting question. So the, the obvious answer is, is uh, education. So mm -hmm. is making sure at a younger age, uh, more women are encouraged to join um, STEM or STEAM, as it's now known. Mm -hmm. um, so science, technology, engineering, and maths. Um, the reality, is like looking at, looking into the data as I have been this week, it is fascinating. So 
typically speaking, of every pound that goes into venture capital, only one pence goes into um, a female, like an all-female founding team. Mm. Um, and that sounds really disgusting, but then like when you look into it even further, and I've had this debate with tons of female founders in my network, so because what I want to do is come from an informed position, not simply a, um, a man's point of view where you're looking for all the negative and then trying to just get female founders talking about the negatives. It turns out there's a lot more to it. So mm. if you actually delve into it, whilst that sounds terrible, the aspect, the fact of the matter is the majority of venture capital funding goes into software businesses. And software businesses are way less likely to be founded by uh, all female teams anyway. And that's also accounting for the fact that the software industry only has 26% um, of it represented as women. So if mm. only 26% of the software industry are women, then it stands to reason that way less of them are going to be female founders. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting when you go down, um, down that path. And then if you go even further, it looks like most... Um, most female-founded businesses don't actually look to take funding. So they tend to have a much smaller risk profile. They take loans, but they don't take venture capital funding. And they actually tend to run businesses uh, much more sensibly than men, broadly speaking. Again, I don't want to make any broad claims like that too badly or insult my own gender, but it certainly seems to be true. So they look to um, create businesses that you know, realistically do what they're meant to do, which is provide value to the customer with a profit margin mm. uh, so that they can run. And most of those businesses are not, they're not required to have venture capital funding at any point. So I think it's really interesting when it comes to the tech industry, because I think the, the top line numbers are skew-if, as in they're terrible. Yeah. And if I tell you that a penny in every pound goes to an all-female founding team, that sounds horrific. Mm. But then... If you actually go in a wider context of um, how many businesses in the UK are run by women versus men, um, I think the numbers are third to two third, which is still not 50-50, of course, and more can be done, but it's a lot better than the 1% that I was just discussing. Yeah. So I do think this stuff has a lot of nuance with industry specific and where we are today as a society. And that leads me back to the same point, which is, um, you know, I was in uh, House of Commons last year, actually campaigning for more women uh, last year, about 18 months ago, for more women um, to be encouraged at school to take technology and science subjects, because that's really where the problem comes from. If you're yeah. running a technology company, um, you're not allowed to do anything like positive discrimination, of course. But if you put out a job post for a developer, um, you will get you know, maybe 100 applications and one will be a woman and 99 will be met. So it's really clear just as the founder looking to employ people um, that there simply is not the volume of people working in the industry as there is with men. So that's a really, that to me, just becomes the most obvious place to start in education. Yeah, completely agree, yeah. I mean, it's a huge subject, but I think it, it's great that we're having so many more conversations about it and people are educating themselves. And, you know, it, there's so much that can be done in schools and with the younger generation. Mm. Brilliant. Well, I mean, so many of these topics I could talk to you for a lot longer on, but I know you've got other very important things to do with your day. Um, so finally, where can our listeners follow you and your work? Oh, well, um, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so my, um, uh, I guess, online presence is at Dan Murray Serta, um, which hopefully you can put in the show notes. That's well, just um, on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it. There's the benefit of taking my wife's surname um, after mine as it's now unique enough that I can use the same thing <laughs> on everything. Um, and um, of course, Secret Leaders, which is available on iTunes and Spotify or secretleaders.com. And I guess most importantly, for anyone where Dawn sounded interesting, uh, then check it out. You can read some of the past newsletters on trydawn.co. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations with Q. We'll be back next week with another very special guest. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback. So please do rate, review and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.